Welcome to Nurture Small Business, creating a thriving space with your host, Denise Kagan. Denise is the president of DCA Virtual Business Support and has been a business owner for almost 20 years. DCA Virtual Business Support provides small businesses with an expert pairing of virtual administrative and marketing assistance to match your needs. Learn more at dcavirtual.com. Maceo Jordan is a serial entrepreneur with two decades of building businesses by creating great products and great marketing. His experience spans a widely eclectic mix of practical real-world experience from the U.S. Army to the cutthroat world of electronic trading. An early pioneer in computerized trading, Maceo built one of the earliest high-frequency trading systems for the S&P 500. When pay-per-click marketing platforms burst onto the scene, he translated his work into massively successful automated systems for Google and later Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. This sounds so exciting. Maceo, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Denise. Glad we could connect. Absolutely. So, in my pre-conversation to you, I learned that you are quite the serial entrepreneur. Can you tell me just a little bit about your first job, your first business? Well, my first business was, like all good things nowadays, a side hustle. Uh, so I was working for a large publisher. In other words, I was a paper boy. <laughs> so delivering my papers around the townhouse complex, yeah, I noticed some ladies had bird feeders hanging you know, on their trees or from their awnings. And I figured out really quickly that they loved having birds around. So I figured out how to make a better one. I got this device, rolled it in peanut butter and bird seed, uh, and Presto Changeo had my first business. Unfortunately, it was a recurring, like a monthly recurring business. They wanted me to come back and refill the bird feeders, but being a, you know, enterprising young boy, I didn't want to work that hard. So, <laughs> so I, I snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. But that that experience, for some reason, even as a child, I understood, you know, hey, if I can find the buyers first, then the product is the easy part. So I took that with me into my adult life after the military and and getting into business. And it has, quite frankly, never failed me. So finding the buyers first, is that more like developing a following? No, I could probably go on for three hours about that, but I'll (laughs) I'll cut it short. I had a digital agency for quite a while. We sold a, a large, as you could probably guess, a software solution. And what I, what I sold it on was return on investment. Now, this was early, you know, this was like 2008, 9, 10. And everybody was about followers and likes and really just nonsense metrics because that's not going to make you money. And we had this massive data set where we could prove that the more of that stuff you got, the harder it was to make money. Because if, if you look at the machinery that you need to, to put in place, to keep the likes and the comments coming and you factor that into the cost of your product, I mean, that's COGS to me, it's really difficult to justify the effort. And of course, nobody believed it because at that time, you know, Facebook was ruling the planet and they, they of course, were promoting their platform and saying, hey, if you get these likes and shares and comments, you're going to make all this money. And it was just a pack of BS. And we could prove it, like we had the data for it. So no, not, I, I really don't talk in, in those terms. It's all in my mind as an entrepreneur, it's always about return on investment. And when I, when I work with entrepreneurs, I try and hammer that into their head that you're investing, whether it's time, you know, people say social media is free. It's not free it unless you don't not. value your time. 
I mean, personally, when I when I factor in my time, you know, we're in triple quad digits, you know, depending on however you calculate that. But it's like, would you pay somebody a thousand dollars an hour to run your social media account? And the answer is obviously no. So the the time factor has got to be to has got to be factored in. But more importantly, entrepreneurs have to take a more holistic view of social media and understand what all the costs are, what all the inputs are, and then have very strict measures of results that lead to the bottom line. You know, I was approached by a luxury real estate company in Florida once about doing their social media. And he was so tied up with, we want to get to 50,000. We want to get to 50,000. Well, we didn't ever come to an agreement because that was also not my style. It's like, you know, great content and engaging people. And, you know, luxury real estate, you know, pays pretty well. So could they have afforded that type of social media? Probably so. I kept up with them and watched them. They acquired their 50,000. Of a 50,000 audience, every single post had no more than two likes. Right, right. I mean, look, it's what people forget is social media is very much like a cocktail party or a social gathering. And for a business to come in there, the way I used to liken it was, hey, walk into a party and try and sell something to a person. Now you might get one or two people deep, but pretty quickly, word's gonna get around, everybody's gonna be avoiding you. You know, Nobody wants to be sold when they go to a party. Well, the antidote supposedly was, well, we just need to think of social media as interruption marketing. Right. So that's where you got all these outrageous videos and, you know, people doing crazy stuff in the intros, which, yes, that will work. You will stop somebody in their tracks when they're, you know, scrolling on their phone and get them to engage with your content. However, we're still selling to a human being. And what, what the social media platforms, and I love picking on Gary Vaynerchuk because he invites it. So I, I'll pick on him. And guys like Gary Vaynerchuk, which everybody forgets, he's got a social media agency. Like he has to convince you that social media is a good idea because that's how he makes his money. What those people have done is really they've muddied the waters. And mm-hmm. what, what they're not talking about is as a business, you have to sell somebody. You've got to engage their emotions, most importantly. You've got to involve them in your product so that they can envision themselves using it. And yes, the social media platforms are a good way to do that because we can put out video, we can, you know, rich media, if you want to call it that. But at the end of the day, sitting down with somebody one-on-one and selling them is always going to be the most effective. Getting on the phone would be the second best. And so as we get further and further away from actual human interaction, it just becomes less efficient. It does. It does. And those um, interrupter type videos that you talked about, if I'm not mistaken, the current algorithm algorithms for the social platforms have sort of downgraded those <laughs> simply because they're not relevant to that page. You know, coming on and doing a contest like, guess how many jelly beans are in this, you know, ginormous jar doesn't relate to real estate. So, They've been paying attention. The platforms have been paying attention to this very much. So the company that you owned, and I want to back up just a tiny bit, you have a ton of experience working with super high tech companies, uh, S&P 500 and the Goliath Google. And this all, uh, this intrigues me. Talk to me. Tell me about this. (laughs) 
Well, in, in programmer speak, I was I've always worked with these companies that are really low level, right? So you said, you know, the, the platforms are getting rid of particular content. And what everybody misses, whether you're consuming content or you're a business and you're trying to advertise or put out content in order to attract customers, what everybody forgets is these platforms don't care about you. They don't care if you succeed. They don't care if you fail. They only care that you keep people on their property. Mm-hmm. Um, Facebook, unfortunately, went way too far. They actually, they, they're under a lot of fire right now because they've, they're actually using very propaganda, you know, Goebbels, Hitler-like techniques to get you sucked into the platform. And so the, the level that I worked on was at the algorithm. In other words, how do we get this thing, this machine, so that when somebody is looking at our site on their phone or they're on the computer, that we can predict what they're going to want to see next so they don't leave? And so that's that's a really key feature of the platforms. And you can, you can adjust for it very simply. If you're on Facebook, keep people on Facebook. If you're on Instagram, keep people on Instagram. But what that means for from a business standpoint, like we'll take the luxury real estate company, what they need to do is make it humorous or entertaining, but then also relevant. So throw, you know, throw a crazy party at the luxury real estate, you know, get a bunch of people together and try and break the Guinness world record for a balloon fight or a water gun fight and feature that in the real estate. Or because you can target individuals, which is really the the beauty of these platforms, you can target an individual very precisely, just figure out who's going to buy the property. You know, where is it situated? And this is, this is sales 101. Who's your customer? What do they want? What's their life like? What are their fears? What are their desires? And it really doesn't matter what platform you're on. If you put a video in front of somebody and you're communicating something that they want, they're going to watch it. And it doesn't really matter the length either. I mean, let's face it. Gandhi was a three-hour movie. It was a hit back in the day. Infinity Wars was almost a three-hour movie. It was a global blockbuster. So you can't tell me long content doesn't work. It has to be entertaining. It has to be worthwhile. And and engaging and capture, uh, you know, we have so little attention these days because so much stuff is in front of our faces. Being a business owner can sometimes feel like being on an island. Our Thriving Thursday event, which is hosted by Nurture Small Business Podcast, is a connection for business owners. Join us by visiting dcavirtual.com slash podcast, where you can register for our next event on May 13th. Remember, Thriving Thursday to connect business owners. So so the company you created um, that you sold was based on that algorithm. Is that it, correct? Well, the al- that was really the start, right? So okay. in in 2000 from 2000 to 2005, I was hardcore in the market. So developing algorithms and computerized trading systems, you know, so we had to model human behavior, translate that into something a computer could understand and then make money with it. Which is basically what Facebook, Google and and all these platforms are doing. You know, they they've reduced us to objects of revenue. When so when the pay-per-click platforms popped into being, I I fit right in because I could not only understand what they were doing in the background, you know, I've always been very black hat. All that means is I don't care about Google's rules. You know, they're like Joe's Pizza to me. They're just okay. a company. Facebook's like, you know, Pete's plumbing. They're just another company. And so I broke all their rules, figured out how to hack their algorithm to get the results that I wanted. 
And that's what I mean by like, I worked with these companies at a low level. Interestingly enough, in the early days with Google, we were part of a, a fairly large product called the ZMOT study. And what they were trying to do is figure out what is the moment of truth when somebody decides either a specific product that they are going to go into a store and buy or a category that they're going to go in and choose from. Now, in the retail world, it used to be called the moment of truth, right? So the moment of truth, you're standing in front of the aisle, you've got all these products, and you've got to make a decision among one of them. What Google wanted to find out, and there was Procter and Gamble and Johnson and Johnson, there were some huge companies involved. You know, we were a really small fish in that. But what we figured out was that the even, and I, I'm, tr- I'm going to mess up the years, I think it was 07 or 08 or something. Even back then, people were starting to use their phones. Google, of course, was trying to say, this is the zero moment of truth, meaning before they go into the store. Now, what's interesting about that is it really telegraphs what entrepreneurs need to know. This is all about human behavior. Stop thinking about it in the sense of we just need to slap something up on this magic social media platform and go back to your sales roots. Think like a salesperson. If you're selling in print, you're selling at a distance. You've got to have really great copy. And it's a really difficult thing. If you're selling on video, you've got a little bit more leeway. You can put visuals and other things. So as we were figuring all of this out, like how do we sell in print? How do we sell in email? What we came up with was a what I called a non-linear sales process. And so we tested content. We tested, we spent a lot of money in figuring out what works and what doesn't. Now, why would I want to do that? Because I want to, I want to transition quickly into you know, how to sell a business. So in technology, what everyone is looking for is something called a network effect or network effects, plural. All that means is as you get more of one thing, it attracts more of another thing that's critical to the business. And it all started back in 1908, which nobody probably expected that, with (laughs) AT&T. So AT&T figured out network effect. And basically the CEO said, you know what? A telephone without a connection to a network is pretty useless. It's not good for a scientific device. It's not even good for a toy. And he was right. Well, Was it AT&T then or Ma Bell? It was AT&T. Okay. (laughs) That's just curious. Yep. Sorry. Uh, no, it's, it, it was, yeah, it went through several transitions. Oh, yeah. So Facebook, if you think about it, the Facebook app, if you're not connected to your group of friends, is absolutely useless. So much like the telephone needing to plug into the network, Facebook's network effect is getting more people in. And in the early days, they used some less than ethical methods to get people, actually trick people, I'll just come out and say it, into inviting more of their friends. And, and actually what they, they did get into a little bit of trouble, when you would connect with them, they would actually go into your contacts and contact people for you because we needed assistance with that, right? Because we're not smart enough to actually tell people, hey, why don't you try this new Facebook thing? So what Facebook realized was if they had somebody come on the platform and get five to seven friends on the platform, then their network effects started taking over, right? Because we forget Facebook's been around for so long that without other people, it's really kind of dumb. It's there to connect you know, me with other, with other folks. So in a technology company, that's really the holy grail. If you want a unicorn or you, know, you want to get these valuations you see in the paper, you have to legitimately have a thing, a, a business where you get a person in or let's say a customer in, we'll take Uber. So Uber, they needed drivers. And you need drivers to get riders, right? So that what that means from a business, if you're going to sell that, whether you're selling it to an investor or you're selling it to the public, 
you've got to have a machine and it has to be believable. And, you know, we could go on for four hours about that, but you have to have a machine where you can say, look, if we get 15 drivers in, you know, a five mile area, then we're going to have 5,000 rides. We'll say over a calendar quarter. Well, that's an, you can put that into an equation and figure out, okay, how much does it cost to get our drivers? Okay, that's one number. And then you have to figure out, okay, well, how do we get word out and get people to actually use the app? Because And they buy them, right? They, they offer incentives or, hey, have a free ride. Uber's early strategy was that simple. Hey, your first ride is free. Yep. So that's why you, the shortcut answer is that's why you go get venture capital money because you need somebody with deep pockets that's willing to pay for that because that, that's risky. And so then what you're figuring out, what, what the risk boils down to is whether or not that equation is right. Are, is it really true that if we get more drivers that we can attract more riders and over time that they're going to stick with it, right? So the, the network effect is driver equals rider, more riders equals more drivers, more drivers equals more riders. That's the network effect. It's like a flywheel. So if you, if you have a technology company, that's the key to getting venture capitalists. That's the key to getting huge valuations. And so we, my company was at such a low level it was it was almost like the grand unified theory of physics that my my physicist brethren have have been chasing and so it really was this grand unifying theory of marketing but more importantly network effects in other words how do you build a machine that will reliably generate business and reliably reliably generate revenue so it sounds like you started that company cuz you mentioned that that was your your goal was to get that network effects for valuation. So it sounds like you started that company with the end in mind. Always. In fact, <laughs> I I don't know why I do this, but so I I started out. I have a very simple process, which I I took from my my trading uh, trading training. So running a trading desk, getting what you want is really very simple. You simp- you have to have a target that's that's reachable and describable. And you've got a course correct, right? So your your day is centered around what you want. And so I sat down in 2000, 2005. And of course, hand wrote out, I'm very analog when it comes to this kind of stuff, exactly what I wanted down to the penny in terms of revenue and described what, I, what the business is going to be like, you know, who it was going to attract and what I wanted to do with it. So what that does is it engages your brain in figuring that stuff out. And so as I was growing the business, of course, you know, I started asking a lot of questions about, you know, how does a company get a billion dollar valuation? Is it just marketing? Uh, because what I learned as a, as a trader, trading stocks in particular, that it's all smoke and mirrors. You know, the, the stock market is marketing. They, they have to convince you to invest in something. And the, the SEC and whatnot is there to make sure that people don't get, don't get too crazy. Because when money's involved, people absolutely get crazy and their, their better judgment, we'll say, will be, will be suppressed. So it, what I figured out through the process was you have to start at the very beginning with that end in mind. Um, now that of course doesn't help somebody who might have a you know business they've been in fifteen or twenty years. What you but you can do though is if 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 somebody listening to this is thinking about selling right, so they've been in the business twenty years, their kids hate the business, maybe the kids hate them because they work so much. So like they're going to spite dad or mom you know for working so hard. It happens a lot actually, and so these are like the real nitty gritty concerns when when you're selling a business. Like, what am I going to do with this asset? First of all, you have to ask, do you really have an asset? Because an asset is priced 
and valued by the buyer, not the seller. That's the <laughs> first lesson you learn as a trader. You could have the greatest thing in the world. And if nobody wants to sell it, you are absolutely going to be busted. So you've all, you've got to, you've got to trade in active markets. I, you know, I, I came in, I came into the trading world when the pits were still around and people traded person to person live, like in one building, in one room, screaming at each other. So you, you have this visceral understanding of what it takes to sell something. I've had plenty of times uh, where I would pick up the phone. I had picked up the phone, called my broker, and I was trying to sell coffee, lumber, you know, a, a supposedly a liquid commodity, and nobody was buying. Well, then my commodity is worthless if I can't sell it. Mm-hmm. So it a, a business owner has to confront that reality. Who am I going to sell it to and what do they want? If you're selling to a venture capitalist, a VC, your business has to have a legitimate growth path so that it, when it is sold, that the fund will get their entire fund at that sale. That's a lot of words. Let's say your company is worth $10 million and you're talking to a venture capital firm that has $100 million in, in assets. They need to sell your company for $100 million in profit in order to make that investment. Now it's because of the way the math works, venture capitalists fail quite a bit. And if they didn't do that, they'd go out of business. That's VCs. With private equity, it's a little bit different. Um, so they still do want a return, but they have some private equity, which will invest for cash flow, right? They want more cash to come in, which means your business had better generate a lot of free cash flow. There are some businesses which are looking to improve what's called their platform. Uh, so let's say you're a manufacturer and you you make watch bands. Well, unless you're going to sell to a private equity firm that owns watch companies, or you're going to sell to LVMH, which is a luxury you know, luxury brand that does have watch companies inside of it, you're probably going to be hard pressed to get a good valuation because those are the only companies that value that particular thing. Same thing goes with, you know, even retail establishments, you know, coffee shops, clothing stores, you've got to have somebody that wants this thing that you've built. And that's such a tough hurdle for a lot of entrepreneurs to get over, myself included, because we put our blood, sweat, and tears in something. But at the end of the day, if you don't have something that someone else is willing to pay your price, you literally have something that's worth zero. I was speaking to somebody yesterday or the day before, and literally what we talked about, he he helps folks, you know, sort of with that path with selling the business. And he talked to me, he said, you know, people are so emotional about their business, but mm-hmm. they also, they are very habitually overvaluate when they think oh, in their yeah, heads, my right. business is Absolutely. worth X, Y, Z. And what you just said rings so true. The yep. value is not really created by the owner. It's created by the the buyer and what that, you know, it goes back to basic economics, you know, what's, yep. what's the need for that? Um, and what's the, can they get it elsewhere for a better price or position? So yeah, that makes, that <laughs> I mean, makes look, complete have, sense. Coupons, coupons are a huge business. Why? Because people want a better price. When you walk into a car dealership, do you just pay the sticker and, you know, say, I'll, you know, give me the card. You just write a check for what's on the sticker <clears throat> or do you negotiate? In every case, people know as the buyer that they have the power because they can always just go somewhere else. But it seems, not seems. So when when an entrepreneur is faced with selling this company, 
it, the, their emotions absolutely take over. And as a, as a trader, I know that's the death knell. You know, if, if I am emotionally involved in a position, I, that is recipe for disaster. And this is why, you know, the stats vary 90 to 95, 96% of businesses don't sell. And I'm usually asked, well, Maceo, what happens to them? They just die. They get gobbled up, people leave, they go somewhere else. I mean, the business just, the, the owner comes in all sad and, you know, lonely, turns off the lights. You know, it's like this, the last scene in the movie where the lights are going out, you've got the sad music playing in the background. I mean, that literally happens every single day all across the world. And it could have been avoided it, it, by simply understanding what you have and who's going to buy it. And then if there's a gap, doing what's necessary to fill that gap instead of trying to you know, force, force feed something into that. Now, this, this relates right back to social media platforms, right? What, what a lot of entrepreneurs think is, oh, if I've got a large enough company, I'll get Goldman Sachs to sell my company. You know, so that they think that, that that marquee brand is gonna somehow, as, as we said in the business, put lipstick on the pig. <laughs> it won't. I don't care who your investment banker is. I don't care what your broker is telling you. You you have, if you're talking to me as an investor, I'm going to look at your business as an asset. If I'm putting $10 million into something, I need to know, number one, what are the, am I going to get my money back? I need to get all $10 million back. And then how fast am I going to get it back? And then how much more am I going to make? It's three very simple pieces of information. And if those numbers you know, if it takes too long, if there's a good risk that I'm not going to get all my money back, I'm only going to get some of it. It's no deal. And now it may be a deal at a lower price. It may be a deal at, at different terms, but at the end of the day, those are the only three things that a, an investor is going to uh, really want to pay attention to, which means, you know, the only alternative is what, what we call the, you know, the, the stupid buyer, right? Then you're just hoping for somebody to come in who has a lot of money and who is just willing to pay the price for whatever reason. And you're okay with that. You're like, look, hey, I think it's worth X, 10 million. I'm just going to go find somebody that values it at 10 million. Good luck with that. Again, that's why 90 <laughs> to 95% of businesses don't sell. <laughs> yeah, I, I sold a business in uh, about 10 years ago, actually, and went completely through a broker. Fortunately, I wasn't particularly emotional. I was ready to move on. There'd been a lot of strife in my personal life and it was just mm. a good end point for the business yep. as well. The valuation when they did it came in at about of a third of what I thought it should have. <laughs> so it was, it was disappointing, but yeah. again, I was not emotional. I was like, okay, let's do it. It still sold six figures, which is, you know, fine. Uh, um, no complaints there, but there is that total disconnect on something that you created from start that was, you know, just an idea, seed, whatever. And then mm -hmm. you, you built it up. So you sold your business. Did you go through a broker? No, no. I, I have very little good feelings for most brokers. In my, in my experience, they always get in the way. You know, they're constantly pumping their buyers up, giving them the siren song. Oh, you know, there's another buyer. In fact, last year, just before COVID, we were dealing with a broker out of Ohio and this guy was just, he was a total nincompoop. Um, whenever I would try and pin him down, he always said, well, you know, these businesses are selling for X. I finally told him, show me three. If you're saying you have the data, show me three or just shut up because he was getting in the way of a transaction. And so that I, I get, I tend to get my backup when it comes to brokers, but it's no different when you go to investment bankers. Their, their job is to get the highest commission 
possible. Mm -hmm. Not to make sure I've got a viable business once I buy, not to make sure that all the numbers are legit, which I've run into quite a bit with with business brokers. And so it's just a very adversarial process, very much like the stock market. Your broker is not your friend. They only care about their commission. And even at big companies, they incentivize their brokers just to get more assets under management. And so really as entrepreneurs, we just... We just have to look at the at how the world is, not the way that we wish it could be. Like in your situation, I mean, six figures is better than no figures, but most people don't look at it like that. And I realize that. So I, you know, I am fortunate to have spent a long time trading where day in and day out, I could I could see when I was making those same, I call them cognitive mistakes. So I'm I've got mental mistakes that I'm making where I'm valuing something outside of where the market is valuing it. And the way we would say it on the trading desk was, if you didn't like that price, you're not going to like the next one, right? So if if I bought something and it went up to, let's say 10 bucks, and I was like, oh man, I should have sold. And it's down around seven and I don't sell. And somebody knows I'm in that position and they know I'm not selling at seven. They, they would say to me, hey, Maseo, if you don't like seven, you're not going to like the next price. Well, why is that? Because if price is going down, it's usually going to keep going down. So one of the amazing things about auctions is that they they find the greatest pain, <laughs> not the greatest pleasure. And so the, the greatest pain point when something is going down is much lower than you would ever expect. Did you sell at an auction? Because I, I thought you told me something different. <laughs> No, I I didn't sell it. That's I was I was leading you somewhere. Yes, yeah, so okay. that's that's actually why I never participate in an auction, because I know that the broker that's at the center of that auction, his job is to manipulate my brain, because that's what I did for a living for fifteen years. And so, if whenever I find an investment banker that is running an auction process, which is usually my first question, I say, "Well, we don't participate in auctions. Thank you." And I literally hang up the phone. <laughs> Having said that, as a business owner, if you create an auction, all the better. So when we were, so we actually had two transactions. The first valuation was around 230 million. Uh, that was with a group out of Florida. And then we had that combined company and we were going out and selling that. And fortunately we were all, you know, we all kind of came from the trading world and we, we created our own auction process, which means we let everybody know that they were involved in the process. You know, most most companies like to keep things quiet and they don't like to sell. Nope, I'm a trader. You know, I know that if if company B knows that company A is in there and even better if they're rivals, you know, we're getting into, you know, the, the psychology that actually matters, not the BS you're gonna, you know, read that's just theory. I've because I've seen I've seen people make transactions in the tens of millions of dollars just so the other guy wouldn't get the deal. And unless you've yeah. seen that, you wouldn't, you'd never believe. It. In fact, I've seen billionaires scuttle hundred million to $150 million deals just so the other guy wouldn't get it. And they spent in some cases, 10 or $12 million to do that in fees and, you know, advisors and whatnot. <clears throat> so I've, I've seen how the world really works in, in that regard. And so if you're selling a business and you can manage to get an auction going, that's how you want to sell a business because that's when people will start bidding up on them, you know, on each other and and really chasing something. That's why Christie's and Sotheby's and all these auction companies are so popular. That's why eBay is a massive platform. You know, it, it it gives people the opportunity to bid and and you know feel like they've got some agency in a transaction. But most importantly, it's the way to get the highest price possible. Okay, so 
venture capitalists? Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> when I was growing my business, <clears throat> I didn't get them involved early enough. Um, I'm very much a maverick, very much going to do it on my own. Of course, comes from all the, you know, the usual childhood traumas. <laughs> but that's, that's mistake number one, is not getting venture capital involved soon enough. Now, this is an absolute minefield and you better know what you're doing. And it goes back to where I started, which is network effects. You need to know what a venture capitalist values. So let's pick on Facebook some more. Facebook was famous in the the VC community because they were selling very small slivers of their company for huge dollars. The reason why is because they, they proved a robust network effect, right? So Facebook's draw is solely because they were going to get 200, 300, 400 million people on the platform and suck in all of their behavioral data and then sell that to advertisers. Very simple model. Once people understood that that was the real play, they knew the value was going to be sky high. So that's a very simple exercise. Now, of course, most entrepreneurs will fool themselves into believing that they do have network effects. If you want to know, start talking, okay, we start talking to VCs very early in the process. That way they're going to give you feedback. They're going to tell you if you actually have something or if you don't. And more importantly, if you do get the auction process going. So if you have one VC that if if you have a VC that's eager to invest in you, your first reaction is going to be tough. Don't take the check. <laughs> Call their competitor. Simply Google Google a transaction they were involved in that they missed out on, or even better, when they're really pressing you to take the check. Say, you know what? Well, let, let's slow down here. Tell me about some of the deals that you've lost. Like, why did you pass up on them? Or why? You know, who who did you lose to most recently? They'll they'll tell you. Then go call them. So you know what? Hey, I was talking with uh, you know X Y Z. So Sequoia, big you know well known venture capital firm. So you say you're talking A sixteen Z, which is a big venture capital firm. Go call Sequoia. You know what? Hey, I was talking with Mark Andreessen. He really likes the company, and they're seeming to you know maybe want to make a deal. Hey, maybe you want to take a look at it. You don't need an intermediator, an intermediary like a broker to run an auction process. You simply need to understand that you have something of value. So get them involved early. Never take the first check. Always ask them who, basically, who's your rival? You know, who did you who did you lose a deal to? You know, tell me about you know your last failure. Tell me about your last win. Always interview them, and always, always, always have multiple VCs going into this valuation and investing process, because it all comes down to one thing. Whenever, when, when somebody is at the closing table and they know they have no competition, what do you think is going to happen? Do you think they're just going to bless you with all the money you want? No, they actually have a phrase for it. It's called retrading. They are going to suddenly come up with 57 reasons why they need more equity, harsher terms, more board seats, more control. And that can spell disaster, especially when things start getting rough. It's exactly what's going on in the housing market right now. (laughs) Literally. I mean, people, my daughter and son-in-law just lost a home where they put in an offer 15,000 over. Somebody put in an offer 30,000 over with no inspection required. Wow, man. What market is that? Uh, Richmond, Virginia. And my colleagues in Charlotte, North Carolina has told me it's been the same way there as well. It's just the housing market has 
been really wow. tight. Pandemic has impacted it severely as far as it goes back to that same e- economics, you know, the availability mm-hmm. of homes right. and the amount of buyers that are trying. There's so many more buyers than there are homes available. So yep. basic economics. That's right. So Maseo, we need to wrap up shortly, but I want to ask you very quickly, you didn't employ some of these tactics during your transaction. <laughs> is that correct? I I am communicating lessons that have, that were learned the hardest way possible through years of effort, my millions of dollars of my own investment. You know, this is not, I rarely communicate theory to people. This is all stuff that I learned the hardest way possible. I, this is not conjecture. This is stuff that I went through. You know, so it's it's the adage, you know, what would you have done differently? I just described it. Uh, you know, would have been all of all of that would have been different, which is part of why, you know, I, I do podcasts like this. I want other people, hopefully, you know, to listen and maybe think, ah, you know, maybe that crazy guy in Arizona is onto something and then they can go Google around and you're going to hear I mean, when, when you get into when you talk to people that are really doing the, you know, the the investing that I'm talking about, they're going to say all the same things that I am. So. All you have just heard from Maseo Jordan, professor from the School of Hard Knocks. Just kidding. That is not his title. (laughs) Maseo, can you tell our listeners how they can find you after our podcast? Yeah, you can get in touch with me personally, uh, maseojordan.com. I've got two projects I'm working on now. We're bringing hospital quality healthcare into the home. That's a company called Connexia. And then I'm working on a little streaming media project where we're looking to cancel Hollywood over at lore.tv. Perfect. Maseo, thank you. It has been a pleasure chatting with you today. Thanks, Denise. Glad to be here. Thank you for joining us for today's Nurture Small Business, Creating a Thriving Space podcast. Learn more about your host at dcavirtual.com or by emailing her directly at denise at dcavirtual.com.